Okay, here we go. Uh, take two, actually, of a an attempt to answer uh, a question from a reader. Uh, I just wasted like 40 minutes recording myself, and then I looked over and I was like, ah, shit, I haven't actually recorded anything. But anyway, um, this is a domain query. Uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island. Now, that is not my original title, by the way. That is the title of an excellent book uh, that investigates how the Federal Reserve System came into being. And uh, the, the motivation for this question, uh, or, excuse me, this post, uh, this uh, answer, if you will, is a question from longtime reader in front of the blog, Kapios, who's uh, been reading my work for years. And uh, he asked me in um, a, a, a comment left on the Monday mashup from uh, Monday the 2nd of March, um, quote, I wish Trump went after the central bank as hard as he obliterated the Democrats. Baby steps, I guess. But since he pressured the Fed director to print more, I don't see this happening. Unless he plans to print money that actually belongs to the government. Someone did this a long time ago, and he, quote, killed the central bank so hard that it took them 70 years to recover, unquote, to quote a documentary about the Fed. I don't know how informed you are about the inner workings of the central banks, but if you have time to research and make a post one day, I would appreciate it deeply. I still never understood their system, if I'm honest. End of quote. Okay. There's a lot to get into here. This will almost certainly run beyond uh, the usual sort of 20 minutes that I like for these uh, these uh, these particular posts uh, or um, domain query uh, discussions. Uh, but central banking is a, a, a broad and fascinating subject, and there are lots of good books that uh, have been written on the subject. If you want some basic brief primers on them, my recommendation is, as always, uh, Mises.org, the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute's website, which is superb. Uh, that's where I learned a lot of, of what I know about central banking, and um, I highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in learning about this subject. So, uh, on to what you know, the, the subject of this discussion. Uh, what is central? What does a central bank do, and how does it do it? Well, to understand this, we have to journey through quite a lot of time and space uh, to understand why central banks operate the way they do. Firstly, I want to talk about the gold standard, or at least about hard money standards, and why paper money came along instead. Second, I want to talk about how the central banks came into existence in general. Third, I will talk about what they do because it's, it's, it's fairly fundamental to our understanding of the modern economy. And fourth, if I have a little bit of time, I'll talk about why they are so bloody dangerous and why they need to be destroyed over time. They, they must be destroyed and replaced with a hard money standard eventually, which is going to happen no matter what we do. It's going to happen. So, first part, why do we have money in the first place? The thing to understand about money is that money is two things. It is a store of value and a medium of exchange. The medium of exchange part has been true since time immemorial. Um, money has always been regarded as a way of simply putting into concrete terms the value of your time, effort, labor, skill, initiative, knowledge, experience versus somebody else's time, effort, labor, skill, knowledge, initiative, experience. It's a 
medium of exchange because it codifies everything into one simple number. You don't even have to think about it. That's the number. Previously, like without money, how would we go about trading? Let's say you have 10 goats and somebody else has five chickens. How many goats is one chicken worth? Or how many chickens is one goat worth? I don't know. Let's say you figure out, you know, uh, one goat is worth three chickens. Okay, so you do a trade. You know, you, you say, I want three chickens. He says, I want one goat. Okay, fine, you do a trade. Now you go along and find uh, a wheat farmer, and he says, uh, I believe that uh, my wheat, 100 bushels of wheat, is worth 10 of your goats. Uh, okay, well, I have only, you know, two goats to sell. Uh, give me um, 20 bushels of wheat, because that's the, the medium of exchange. Then you go along to, um, you go, you go along to, oh, pff, what, the, the fisherman. And you say to the fisherman, I would like to buy some fish off of you. And you, and he says to you, well, um, what do you have to trade with? Uh, well, I have goats and wheat um, and uh, some chickens. Okay, well, I can offer you 20 fish for 5 bushels of wheat, or 10 fish for 1 goat, or 8 fish for 2 chickens. You understand, I mean, very quickly, these complications become, these calculations become ridiculously complex. Money reduces it down to one number. That's it. That's all you have to worry about. One number. So, your entire skill, your all of your uh, uh, time and effort and labor, all of your expertise, all of your knowledge, all of your luck, because luck is a big part of life, gets converted into a single number. It's a single measurement of, of exchange. This is the purpose of money and has been the purpose of money since the entire idea of trade came about. God knows how many tens of thousands of years ago. It's one of the oldest and most fundamental ideas of human existence. The idea of money as a store of value, however, is rather newer. It came about because people eventually realized that money could be kept and could be grown over time, that we could defer consumption now you know, beyond the mean needs of mere survival to consumption in the future. And the way to link today's consumption with tomorrow's consumption would be this, this bridge of a rate of interest. Now, the Bible says very clearly, you shall not lend money uh, at interest. Um, that understanding is limited, and, and there's a lot of good Christian research into this. There's a lot of deep detailed analysis into why that idea um, is restricted only to the, the, the idea of money as a medium of exchange. But essentially, it is permissible to lend money at interest. It is not permissible to lend money at exorbitant rates of interest. Quite what exorbitant means is you know, off a debate, but basically that's the point. Um, you can lend money at interest. The the way in which you bridge that gap between today's consumption and making it worthwhile to defer some of that consumption to tomorrow is through the mechanism of interest. 
the moment you start saving your money and you go from today's consumption to tomorrow's, you will get some payment back for that consumption. You will get some, you know, reward for deferring. So that is where money as a medium, uh, as a store of value comes in. And historically speaking, the kinds of money that fulfill the functions of both a medium of exchange and a store of value have been fairly limited. Uh, there, there are plenty of things that function as a medium of exchange, but hold their value very poorly. Um, in Sparta, in ancient Sparta, for instance, iron bars were used as the form of currency. Um, the Spartans were notable for many things, including uh, having a constitution second to none, pretty much, in the ancient world. Um, if you actually look at the, the great retra of the Spartans, it is actually closer to the concept and understanding of the United States Constitution than anything the Athenians came up with, and almost anything the Romans came up with. It's uh, astonishing how modern the Great Retra is, even though it was written 4,000 years ago, roughly speaking. Um, or, you know, 3,000, whatever it was. Um, that being said, the Spartans were economic illiterates because they were a proto-communist society. They, you, know, you had, at the peak of the Spartan Empire, they had uh, about fifteen to 25,000 thereabouts, depending on the year. Um, full-fledged Spartiates, or homoioi, peers, supported by about 300,000 slaves, helots. Uh, as with any communist society, they were functionally illiterate when it came to economics. So, Iron is not a good store of value. Why? I mean, it's a good medium of exchange, but it's not a good store of value. Why? Because iron rusts. Um, iron loses value over time. Whereas, if you look at uh, some of the most successful coins and, um, and, and trading instruments in human history, what were those? Well, Spanish doubloons, uh, Chinese gold coins, um, the... Uh, the, the Roman solidus, or Byzant, or as it eventually became known, the Byzant. Uh, the Byzant in particular, I mean, it held its value for 600 years. It was, the, it was the medium of exchange in the Mediterranean for 600 years. Why was that? Because the Byzant was like 96% gold, it was solid, it was weighty, it worked. Why is gold a medium of exchange? Because, number one, it, well, because... A medium of exchange needs to be a number of different things. A medium of exchange needs to be fungible, meaning that it can be subdivided into smaller and smaller amounts, as, as is necessary. Iron, it's very hard to do that. You can't really do that very well. Silver, you can do that. Uh, bronze, you can do that. Brass, well, sorry, not brass. Bronze, you can do that because it's, uh, it's, made, of, it's made of metallic alloys, copper and, uh, and zinc, I think. Uh, copper and tin. Um, my chemistry's a little off, but you get the idea. Um, there are uh, there are other things which make for good mediums of exchange. Um, seashells are not a good medium of exchange because you can't really break a seashell and you know turn it into more seashells that are, are of lesser value. A seashell has aesthetic qualities to it that make it a very poor medium of exchange. If you break a seashell, you've lost that medium. It's it's a stupid medium of exchange. Uh, colored feathers are a dumb medium of exchange. You can't break colored feathers up into smaller colored feathers. With metallic coins, you can break them into smaller and smaller coins, 
uh, without really losing too much of the value. So they're fungible. They are uh, durable. So metal lasts a long time. Metallic coins last a very, very long time. They are easily transported. Metallic coins can be moved easily from place to place without too much difficulty. You could carry them in big chests. Um, you could carry them in purses, in wallets, whatever. I mean, it was possible to carry these things on your person with relative ease. But out of all of the fairly narrow class already of mediums of exchange, the number of things which were stores of value was pretty tiny. Really, the only thing that came close was gold. Why? Because gold holds its value. Gold doesn't rust. Gold is non-ferrous. So over time, most cultures and civilizations on Earth move towards a gold standard because gold has all of these wonderful properties that make it a superb way of transacting monetarily, trading, uh, and maintaining an economy. But with gold comes a number of problems. I mean, problems for, from a government's point of view, not from a merchant's or individual citizen's point of view. Number one, though there's the single worst problem with gold is that gold exercises a massive break upon government profligacy, uh, government desire to spend. Why is that? Because when you have a gold standard, your currency is either pegged to a particular unit value of gold, like for instance the United States dollar is officially defined in the US Constitution as being a certain number of gold grains. The fact that nobody pays attention to it anymore is unfortunate, but the fact is the US dollar is defined as a specific amount of gold. Um, either you peg it at that level or you actually mint gold coins that, you know, that, that mark the value of your gold, of your, of your, of your currency. Now, the biggest problem with gold is that, again, you can't just get away with printing money. Not possible. You can't do that. Um, in order to finance wars, uh, additional payments to your armies, uh, social programs, so on and so forth, you have to raise gold to do it. You have to, the government has to raise the funds to do it. You can't just print money. The equivalent of printing money under a gold standard is effectively to debase the currency, to mix uh, the, the total amount of gold out there, like to, to reduce the amount of gold in your coinage by adding in base metals. So let's say, for instance, your gold coin is 96% pure gold. You could debase it by reducing the total amount of gold in your new coins by, let's say, to down to 80%, and instead add in inferior metals such as copper or um, uh, tin uh, or you know, iron, even, if you really want to be stupid, um, because of, you know, the problems with um, combining ferrous and non-ferrous metals. They don't, they don't work that well together. Uh, anyway, the, the problem is that that, dis that subterfuge would be spotted almost instantly, because it's very easy to tell what is pure gold and what is not pure gold. Merchants would immediately store the old gold coins, which are superior, and start using the new gold coins which are inferior for all of their transactions. That um, will immediately create a severe problem of inflation because now you've got more and more money essentially 
chasing fewer and fewer goods because people will now realize that they if they sell their goods with the new gold coins which are debased they will get less value in gold for what they have produced so they will refuse to sell what they have at the old prices they will insist on higher prices because the old gold coins were a better store of value they will keep those old gold coins and charge more under the new gold coins so you get massive inflation that's exactly what happened in the crisis of the third century in rome when diocletian in emperor diocletian insisted on debasing the coinage and that's exactly what's happened every single time people have tried to debase the coinage in human history on top of that let's say you wanted to avoid debasing the coinage um, which was a really dumb idea because inflation is a bitch um, you would have to raise taxes so you would have to take more away from people to finance your big government initiatives your your you know pie in the sky dreams that's extremely unpopular because of course nobody wants to pay more in taxes I mean why would you right uh, there's no good reason to pay more in taxes than you absolutely have to so you're kind of stuck as a government, you're stuck. You have to stick to the amount of taxation that people are willing to tolerate. You can't debase your coinage. You can't print your way out of trouble. You can't issue lots of debt. When you find new amounts of gold, you have to be careful about how you introduce it into the economy. Um, you can't go embark on endless wars of foreign conquest without a lot of victories. I mean, if you win, you have to exact enormous amounts of tribute in order to finance your own wars. You can't just go on endless humanitarian missions because that's not possible under a gold standard. So, gold is a wonderful break upon a government's power, and also it's a but also it's a it's a problem from a government's point of view because when an economic recession hits, the value of the currency immediately drops, and the ability of the government to react to that is very limited. When when you're on a gold standard, your, your, your currency is pegged to a, a particular unit value of gold, um, and, your, and an economic recession hits, what typically happens is that uh, the total value of the goods and services of your people, meaning the total value of their labor, their skills, their input, etc., etc., drops. It has to, because that's what an economic recession is. It's a drop in economic activity. Now what's happened is that under the old regime, you know, your currency may have been worth a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars for an ounce of gold. It's, I mean, these days it's closer to one thousand something, one thousand five hundred dollars per ounce. But you know, so let's say, for instance, if we lived in a fictional world where the U.S. dollar was still pegged to gold, one ounce of gold was worth one thousand five hundred dollars. Now, let's say the U.S. economy crashes overnight. Um, that value shoots up. Why? Because the total amount of goods and services, the, the value of the goods and services that the people of the United States can produce is not justified by paying $1,500 per ounce of gold. That ounce of gold has become vastly more valuable. So now the currency has to be debased. It has to, it, it has to be devalued, I should say. Excuse me. Now the price of gold in dollars has to go up massively in order to reflect the new economic reality. The only way to do that is for the U.S. government to sell dollars and buy gold. Uh, 
and by selling dollars that decreases the value of the dollar relative to gold and increases the value of gold relative to the dollar obviously you know that has the net effect of jacking up interest rates uh, in order to maintain like either if you if you do that then you affect you significantly affect the rate of interest uh, because by engaging in these currency operations what you're doing uh, the only way to do it effectively is to change the rate of interest that your treasury of the United States is willing to give to people to entice them to hold their money in dollars. The moment you start jacking up the rate of interest, you put a massive deflationary break on the economy, which means that you deepen an already severe recession by making it a crisis. That is the reality of a gold standard. It it has a, an extremely powerful breaking effect upon runaway spending and runaway economic booms, but it also has an equally terrible uh, restraining effect upon an economy that is in the depths of a serious recession. Governments hate that, and they hate having their power curtailed. That is why governments have historically always tried to break away from a gold standard. Either they have tried to print their way out of trouble, which never works, or they have tried to switch to paper money, which never works, or they have tried to abandon the gold standard altogether and move to something else, which never works. Until World War One, What changed here? Because if you look at every other uh, attempt to move away from gold, paper money always failed. Why? Because it was always possible for the people of an economy or the, the people trading with you know, those in that economy to move to a different standard if that particular nation decided to abandon gold. Um, and the nation that received their business instead would always be like, hey, this is great because, you know, you idiots devalued your currency by switching to paper, uh, which everyone can see is worthless. You know, you've just given us a huge amount of business because uh, people like our currency. It's stable. It's backed in gold. It's uh, it's a very useful currency. So we'll we'll take your money. Thank you very much. That is that worked for a long, long time up until World War One. World War One changed the arithmetic completely because all of the great empires, all of the great trading nations, all of the maritime um, sort of powers, all of the gold-backed nations, except the United States, went straight down the shitter. Every single one of them lost a huge amount of their industrial base, the cream of their youth, their male youth. Uh, they lost their empires, they lost their innocence, and they ran up ruinous wartime debts. I mean, to the point where, like, to give you, to put this into perspective, Russia only recently finally paid off the wartime debts that it, the Russian government under the imperial tsars accrued in World War I. A hundred years later, they finally paid off to Germany the actual final debt payments that they owed in terms of bonds and indemnities. That gives you some idea of how ruinous those wars really were. The war, the World War I shattered the entire existing world economic order. I mean, it just completely destroyed it. Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Austria, 
all of the great empires were ruined by this war because of the cost in men, the destruction of uh, trade routes, the destruction of Europe as a functional civilization, um, and the rise of really poisonous, deadly, economically illiterate, stupid, uh, I utopian ideologies like communism and fascism on the continent of Europe. This was the disruption that the paper money types really wanted and needed. The cataclysmic upending of an entire world order. Enter the progressive movement to move away from the gold standard, which had been building actually for some time. You can go all the way back to the uh, Democratic National Convention of 1896, where William Jennings Bryan uttered that famous speech about, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Essentially what he was saying was, um, government should, should not be constricted from helping people get up off their, you know, get on their feet in, the, in, in times of hardship. Um, and the reason why he said it was because during the Gilded Age, uh, from about 1870 to sort of 1910 or thereabouts, there was tremendous prosperity in the United States. But the perception was, this was not an accurate argument, but it was a perception at the time, that the wealth was restricted mostly to the financial elite and the landed gentry and the aristocratic upper classes of the United States at the expense of poor farmers who saw the value of their produce drop dramatically because farm prices collapsed in the very, very sharp recession of the 1870s and the, the, the post uh, the post uh, civil the post war between the states recession and it was a huge recession it was ex extremely painful um, the reason why it was an economic boom overall in reality was because while the prices of uh, agricultural produce dropped significantly the wages paid for um, workers at the time did not drop nearly so fast which is typically what happens in uh, severe recessions even wages typically drop much more slowly than prices do and as a result, real economic growth, real progress was much greater than the perceived economic growth, if you, if you get what I mean. So and the result was that um, the, the gold standard, the, the, the movement to move away from the gold standard had a lot of sympathy, but it didn't really have legs. Um, what changed all of that was World War I and President Woodrow Wilson. Now, Woodrow Wilson is unquestionably one of the most abominably bad presidents of all time. Uh, it was he who basically codified uh, and signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. And this has been nothing short of a disaster ever since. The first meeting of the Federal Reserve happened in 1913, you know, this meeting on Jekyll Island. And this was actually the third, the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank is actually the third central bank of the United States. There were two attempts before that. The first bank of the United States was a very short-lived enterprise. It had a charter, a specific charter, which it ran out and it was never renewed by Congress because back then Congress was actually, you know, congressional delegates were actually somewhat economically literate. They understood that a gold standard was useful and important and they kept it. The second bank of the United States under Benjamin Strong uh, was uh, basically destroyed by uh, President Andrew Jackson. And it is for this reason that a lot of people think of Andrew Jackson as one of the best presidents the United States has ever had. 
despite his record of you know um, conquests against the Indian tribes and uh, all of the horrible things that he did to them, he is still considered to be perhaps the greatest of those American presidents precisely because he destroyed the central bank and kept America on the gold standard. And this was an incredibly difficult fight because Benjamin Strong was considered one of the most powerful people in the world at the time. This is the level of power that a central banker has. Now, why do central banks have so much power? It comes down to how they operate. And this comes, you know, after like 30 minutes of rambling, I admit, but this comes to the heart of Kapios's question. How does a central bank operate? Okay. Suppose you're a bank, all right? And this is how banking has worked for a thousand years or more. If you're a bank, I come along to you and I say to you, I want to forego current consumption for future consumption. And to do that, I'm going to deposit my savings with you. Uh, and you're going to pay me a rate of interest. And I'm going to come along later on, take that money that I've saved up and use that to finance something good. Um, and you will say as, as the bank, okay, sure. I'll offer you 2% interest uh, every year paid every month into your account. And like, swell. Uh, I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I'll pay you, I'll give you right now a hundred, I don't know, shekels, let's say. I'll give you a hundred shekels, you pay me 2% interest. At the end of this year, um, I will have 102 shekels, effectively. Um, now, that's great for me. It means that in one year's time, I will, instead of being able to buy 100 shekels worth of stuff now, I can buy 102 shekels worth of stuff a year from now. Fantastic. You as the bank, however, have a problem. Because now you're paying me money, but you're not making money yourself. So now let's say you go along and find another guy. Let's say, oh, I don't know, I mean, since we've got, uh, since I have a few readers in my blog, let's say you go along and find Dire Badger, right? And you say to Dire Badger, okay, well, look, you look like a trustworthy sort, and I hear you have a project coming up. Uh, it looks like it's going to take 10 years, and I know you pretty well, dude. I mean, you know, you're a stand-up guy. You've done a lot of good stuff before. You're a pillar of the community, so on and so forth. Um, I will lend you 100 shekels right now for 10 years, and you're going to pay me 3% interest every year for 10 years. Dire Badger's like, well, hey, I got funding for my project. You're like, well, hey, I get 3% interest. So, you know, at the end of the year, I'm going to get um, three shekels back. And I only have to pay this idiot on the other side one she two shekels in interest. One shekel in profit for me. Fantastic. You know, you sit there rubbing your, your hands in glee. That's how banking works. And when done right, it's a hugely profitable enterprise. But still one big problem. Suppose I come along in one year's time and I say I want all my money back. Uh-oh. You've lent that 100 shekels, actually 102 shekels now, out to Dire Badger. Dire Badger has to pay uh, you back, but it's over a long period of time. It's over 10 years. I want my money back right now. What are you going to do? You don't have the money. This is a central quandary of banking, and it's solved by the fact that the likelihood of one individual coming to a bank and asking for all this money back is very low. The like, oh, sorry, excuse me, the likelihood of one individual coming to the bank and asking for all this money back at any given point in time is not insignificant. I mean, it's not, it's not trivial. It's 
put a rough probability on it, it's about 15%, let's say. That's a made-up number, but let's say it's 15%. Now suppose you have a 1,000 customers. The probability of all of them running into you to ask for all of their money back at exactly the same point in time, damn near close to zero, because that's the joint probability distribution of all of those 1,000 people. So you now have a very interesting uh, benefit on your hands. Each of those thousand people comes along and deposits a hundred shekels with you, the bank. You now have a hundred thousand shekels. You only need to keep a small amount of that in reserve in order to satisfy the needs of any one individual who comes along and asks for his money back. You only need to keep, in fact, about 10 to 15 percent of that money in reserve. So you keep 1,500 shekels in reserve just in case somebody comes along and asks for all of his money out of the bank. The rest of that money, that uh, 100,000 shekels, can now be, minus the 1,500 that you're keeping, can now be spread far and wide in the form of loans. And you can collect interest on those loans. This is the core of all banking. And this is how a central bank exploits and uses the core of banking to affect the economy. How does a central bank work? Okay. A central bank comes along and says, I have purview over all of the banks in this economy. I regulate all of them. I have insight into all of them. I am the lender of last resort to all of you, all of you banks, every single one. A central bank does this through two methods. The first is called open market operations, and the second is called overnight lending. With open market operations, what happens is that the central bank will typically buy or sell government securities, or these days it will, like the more preferred method is to engage in a, uh, an overnight repo, a repurchase agreement, effectively, with a client bank. By buying a government security, uh, or by engaging in, a, in an overnight repo, what will typically happen is that um, when the when the U.S. government sells like issues debt, banks from all over the country and around the world will look to snap that debt up because banks are always looking for places to get yield. They are always looking for interest, right? They are always looking for good investments that can give them interest. So if the U.S. government comes along and offers bonds bearing a 10% coupon, the the bank the you know, the individual banks out there, the JP Morgans and the, you know, SunTrust banks and the, um, the avant-garde banks in Russia and the, you know, Mitsubishi Financial in Japan and what, I mean, they're, they're all going to be like, holy shit, the U.S. government just give, issued out debt with a 10% coupon. Okay, I want that. So they'll go and buy this debt. Um, what will then happen is that, uh, the central bank will come along and say to, I mean, let's say SunTrust Bank, to just pick a random bank. SunTrust Bank, sell me your government debt. I will pay you uh, some amount of, you know, whatever the whatever the, the value of the bond is, face value of the bond. Uh, SunTrust Bank says, okay, sure, fine. Sells the bond to the central bank. Central bank holds government debt and pays money to, the, uh, to SunTrust. SunTrust, let's say, gets a million dollars. All of a sudden, 
a million dollars hits SunTrust's account from the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve. Again, remember, SunTrust only needs to hold a certain amount of that million dollars in reserve. So now SunTrust does a few calculations and says, hmm, well, the Federal Reserve only requires me to hold 10% of my total deposits in reserve. 90% I can lend out to other banks. Huh. Okay. So it takes 90% of that $1,900,000 and starts lending it out to other banks. Those other banks take in that money. They only need to keep 10% of that money in reserve. They will start lending out 10% of whatever they've received, and so on and so forth. This is what is known as the money multiplier effect. It is also known as the way in which a central bank creates money out of thin air, because that's exactly what it's doing. It, there has been no increase in the total number of goods and services sold in an economy, none whatsoever. There has been no increase in the, 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 the total base of gold in the economy. Hasn't happened. All that's happened is that a bank has sold a financial instrument and created a huge, or, you know, bought a financial instrument and created a huge amount of what is called base money. It's money out of thin air. There's nothing backing it. There is no economic value to it. This, my friends, is exactly why a central bank is so fucking dangerous. There is nothing backing this money. Nothing. Has, it has no claim on any value. This is why central banks are the weapon of choice these days. Because now, governments have the ability to finance whatever they want, manipulate interest rates however they want, finance endless wars, endless amounts of spending, and they can do it by using the central bank to manipulate rates of interest. The central bank manipulates uh, the rate of interest uh, of its sort of benchmark overnight lending rate, and it also manipulates the uh, total amount of money um, like the, in, in the economy, the base money supply, as it were, by manipulating the total amount needed that all banks need to hold in reserve. This is what is, again, the money multiplier. Um, to get an idea of how much money can be created from just $1 of open market operations, you know, you just take the existing reserve requirement, and uh, if it's 10%, it's 1 over 10%, which is uh, 100, basically. Um, 1 over, you know, 1 over 1 over 10. So, sorry, that's uh, 10 times. So 1 over 1 over 10 is 10x, right? So $1 of open market operations increases the base money supply by 10 times. That gives you some idea of just how dangerous and astonishing the power of a central bank is. And now you get some idea as to why they are so powerful, why they can take on presidents and win, why they can take on entire governments and win, why they can crash an entire economy without consequences, uh, for them anyway. The, the reason why presidents in general, and Trump in particular, like lower rates of interest is because uh, a lower rate of interest means more people buying stuff, more people spending, more people taking out loans for houses, and so on and so forth, you know, um, it, it makes them look good because they have increased economic activity without really having to do very much of anything. Um, it's a very cheap and effective way for them to operate. And if you look at Trump in particular, I mean, again, remember, Trump's background is in real estate. 
uh, as far as he's concerned, low rates of interest are good because it means that people will buy more, people will, um, you know, go looking for houses more. Uh, it's good for him as a real estate lender. So um, this, I think this has gone on for probably quite enough, but I hope that sheds some light on how central banks work um, and why they are so powerful and uh, why they will almost certainly never be killed. What will it take to undo the damage of a central bank? Well, I mean, it means going back onto a hard money standard, which is not going to happen until and unless uh, a currency collapses. And that's going to take like hyperinflation, um, you know, the bottom dropping out of, of the U.S. stock market. Uh, it's going to require the destruction of the U.S. empire, the, the total unraveling of the U.S. economy. I mean, it's going to require so much pain and misery to go back onto a hard money standard um, that I, you know, it's, it's just unthinkable. It's unbearable. It's, it's horrifying to contemplate. But that's the point we're at. I'm sorry to say it's, uh, it's just, it's awful to think of, but that's the reality. Um, you know, is there a better way forward? Well, maybe. I mean, cryptocurrency offers one possibility, but there are a lot of problems with crypto. Uh, which maybe I'll get into in you know in a future episode perhaps. There are a lot of problems with um, with all of these alternatives. I mean, one that Friedrich von Hayek pr pr proposed was uh, pegging any given currency to an international basket of currencies uh, to remove the power of a bank, any bank, to manipulate the the value of a currency. That idea has a lot of merit, but you know you're still stuck with paper, ultimately. And um, currency pegs have a very nasty habit of backfiring on you, particularly if you're a, a kind of a, a small open economy, uh, as we found out during the Asian financial crisis 23-odd years ago, where you know all the Asian economies which had currency pegs uh, had to get rid of them, pretty much, uh, or devalue them significantly. So, um, Kapios, I, I do hope this answers your question. I know I went on for quite a while, um, but I hope this, uh, this provision in some detail is helpful. So, uh, that's it. And uh, as always, feel free to leave a comment and like and subscribe here on SoundCloud or at the blog. And I will see you on the next one.